If Jesus was here, what question would you like to ask him? If you were face to face with Jesus, what kind of question would you like to ask him? Do you have anything rolling around in your mind? Something that you would like to, wow, if I just had a chance, I'd ask Jesus this question. Maybe if I was a child, I might ask the question, why were mosquitoes created? But I think I would probably look more to questions like, oh, Jesus, how could you be so patient with the people that you were with, and how could you be so patient with me? Or ask him the question, Why were people's hearts so hard towards you? Why, when you told them so much, were their hearts so hard? I don't know what kind of question I'd ask. We're going to find in our passage of Scripture today that the Jewish leaders asked Jesus a question, and it's really kind of surprising, the question that they asked. And to set the stage a little bit here, before we look at the passage of Scripture, we're going to be looking at John chapter 10. If you want to find that, you can, you can start uh, looking for that, John chapter 10. But I want to ask a, a question of you as we look at John chapter 10. Does anybody know how many chapters, and you can look in your Bible, this is an open book test, does anybody know how many chapters there are in the book of John? 21, okay, yes, I hear that. 21 chapters, and we're in chapter 10. And so the immediate thing that we could draw from that is that we're halfway through the book of John, but are we halfway through the life of Christ? No, we're not. We're halfway through the book of John. John goes on for 11 more chapters but we're towards the very end of Jesus' life. Jesus ministered here on the earth for a little over three years, three years, three months, four months, something like that. And what we'll find is we are about two and a half to three months before the crucifixion. John chapter 10, we only have about three months until Jesus is crucified. And something that we find here in this passage is that for John, this is the last public public teaching that Jesus gives before he comes back to Jerusalem to be crucified. And so John is, is setting this up as a very pivotal point in his gospel of saying, this is a turning point for Jesus. Jesus knows he's going to the cross. Now, We do know a little bit of what happens during those uh, three months, during the three months here before he comes back to Jerusalem, because Luke's gospel is arranged a little bit differently, and if you go to chapter 14, 15, 16 in Luke, that's what's covered in the intervening time here. Matter of fact, next week's message by our guest speaker is going to be on some of that. Um, And so what we have is Jesus is, is... pivoting and he's transitioning into a time when he's going to focus very intently on his, close, on his chosen disciples. If you look at the beginning of Luke 14, 15, 16, it says something like, and Jesus gathered his disciples together and taught them. And it's, it's just repeatedly throughout those chapters. 
But what's going on here in John is John is taking us from Jesus' last public ministry that John talks about and shows us the, the questions that are on the mind of the people with Jesus. Now, John had a very specific purpose. He tells us what his purpose is for writing the book of John, the gospel of John, in John chapter 20. If you go the whole way to the end of John, John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, I've written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so what John does is for the first ten chapters, he is setting out the case for why we can believe that Jesus is the Christ. John's purpose is moving us to that point. One of the amazing things about the Gospel of John is it only gives us um, about 20 days of Jesus' life. Like John chapter 3 talks about his time with Nicodemus. Almost an entire chapter is one evening. John chapter 4 is Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Almost an entire chapter, one day. But John, John gives a more intensive look at these single days where Jesus is ministering and he continuously tries to show us why we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, trying to tell us who He is. And so as these ten chapters build the case, we get to John chapter 10, and the part we're going to look at today starts at verse 22. And I want to just read the Scripture as we go through the, through the, uh, uh, through the message here this morning. And the first few verses here in John chapter 22, or John chapter 10, starting at verse 22, it says, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the, if you are the Messiah or the Christ, tell us plainly. Messiah means the anointed one, the one that we've been looking for. And so the, the question that the Jewish leaders chose to ask is, if you're the Christ, tell us! And keep in mind, John's been building this case to say that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's look at this a little bit and find out what's going on. Um, it says, they came, uh, then came the festival of dedication. The Jewish people had lots of festivals throughout the year, and we, we remember some of these. Um, what is the festival of, festival of dedication? You know, do we know a whole lot about this festival? What is it? Um, during the intervening time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's about 400 years. And about 160 years before Jesus came, there was a revolt a, a, a revolution that, that took over the city of Jerusalem, and heathen people came and had possession of the temple for about a three-year period of time. Um, you can read about all that through history. And uh, during these three years, it was just a, a terrible time. They, they offered sacrifices to, to foreign gods and all kinds of things, just desecrating the temple. And it just... It, it just the, the, the Jews just lost heart in all this. And after three years, the temple was taken back, 
and was rededicated. So the festival of dedication is remembering the, dedica- the, the rededication of the temple to the Lord's work, and they created a festival about this. Now it tells us what time of year this happened. We can start picking some of the chronology here of what's going on. This happened in winter. And this festival has been renamed to other things. One thing is it's noted for the lights, and it's sometimes called the Festival of Lights. It goes on for eight days. It happens in winter. And the Jews call it Hanukkah now. So you may have heard of this. It's this festival, and that's sort of the history of it for where it's going on. And this festival is commemorating something that had already happened 160 years before Jesus was there. And uh, so Jesus is walking there, and we know that it's wintertime. We know that this festival would happen in December. What happens three months after December? We start getting into Easter. And Easter is the Passover festival. That's how we know that there's about three months between the time that this account goes on and the time when when, uh, the, the Passover feast and Easter happen. And so Jesus is walking in Solomon's colonnade. Now the temple complex was a huge place, just absolutely huge, especially when you think that it all had to be built by hand. And the, the primitive tools that they would have had compared with what we have now in Hong Kong, you can't go through much of Hong Kong without seeing some big crane. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the official bird of Hong Kong. Uh, it's just everywhere. Now, they didn't have any of those kind of things, and they built this temple, and Solomon's temple was uh, the, the central focus of that temple, but around it became various courtyards, and there's this Solomon's colonnade. It was a covered courtyard, um, a, a protected place somewhat, and large crowds of people could gather there. It was a very public place. Um, many people there. So Jesus is in this Solomon's colonnade, and it's important to note that that's where this happened. Because the Jewish leaders, and when it says the Jews here, it means the Jewish leaders. The, Jews, the Jewish leaders found him in Solomon's colonnade, in a very public place, and made a big deal of this question. They said, basically, with everybody here as your witness, out here in this public place, we want you to tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Are you this one that we've been waiting for? Now, I don't know if this question surprises you at all, But it's certainly not the first time that Jesus has answered this question. Matter of fact, we find here in this passage of Scripture two times when they want to stone him because he answered this question. This is the third and fourth time that they wanted to stone Jesus because he answered the same question. And he's answering the question for them, this is now the third, fourth, and actually the dozen, two dozen, three dozen times that Jesus has answered this question in one way or another. But they're trying to make a public thing out of it so that there is public support for the Jewish leaders to punish Jesus for what he's doing and saying. They want to be sure that they have enough public support 
to say, see, he says that he's God. And the Old Testament tells us that for making that statement, you were stoned to death. And so they're asking Jesus to tell them plainly, as if he's been hiding it from them. No, it's all a ruse. It's all this trumped up stuff to to get it out there for their political gain so that they can capture Jesus. And so what happens here? We have an encounter. The Jewish leaders encounter Jesus. They come up to Him and they ask this question again and again and again. It reminds me of when my children were little. If they, could answer, if they could ask the question enough times, they might get the answer that they want. And so what did Jesus say? Well, there's other times, and like I said, John is building the case for who Jesus is. And so John shows us that Jesus is clearly saying that he is the Messiah. Like in John chapter 4. The woman at the well came to Jesus and said, "Uh, I know that the Messiah who's called the Christ, He's coming. And when He comes, He will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am He. Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. We look at another place. And I'm trying to stick as much as I can to the book of John. If I went to the other Gospels, I could find other places. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, uh, uh, Jesus had said that he was the, uh, the Messiah, the, the, the Son of God. And in verse 18, they come back. For this reason, they tried to kill him all the more. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he healed somebody on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus was clearly saying, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the one that you've been waiting for. In John chapter 8, Jesus makes the statement, he says, Verily, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And there's a couple things going on there. Before Abraham was, Abraham was hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus lived. Before Abraham was, I was in in existence. I am God. He says, I am And many of you know the significance from the Old Testament. We're going to come up on it again in just a few minutes. But the word I am is a name for God. And when Jesus used that, he was saying that he is God. The Jewish leaders clearly understood this because the very next verse says, At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and slipped away from the temple grounds. To the original listener, to the one that was hearing these words from Jesus' mouth, they clearly knew that Jesus was saying, I am God. 
If they had any doubt about it, they would not be wanting to throw stones at him. Stoning was meant to be a capital punishment. The temple and parts of Jerusalem were oftentimes in construction. It's not hard to find stones that they could throw at him, literally, until there was a mound around the person being stoned. And the person was so wounded and hurt that they died in the street as they were being stoned. And that's what they intended to do because they believed his words. Now, I've already um, alluded to this a few weeks ago in a sermon, but uh, just pointed out to you how Jesus plainly said who he was. He did it seven times with the I am statements, and I just have them up there so you can see them. Jesus gave an illustration using a specific example, like the bread of life or light or the door or gate, and he says, this is who I am. Matter of fact, the door or the gate is that he says that I am the way to the Father. You need to come through that gate. Jesus is saying, I am. And if you want to find the scripture for that, I encourage you to look at Exodus chapter 3, and you'll see the time when Moses saw the burning bush. And Moses was going to be commissioned to go back into Egypt and bring the Israelites as captives, as slaves in Egypt, out to the promised land. And he realized that he was going to be the one that needs to take the message to the Pharaoh and say, I'd like you to give your entire labor force an opportunity to leave. That's going to go over real big, isn't it? I'd like you to release all your employees so that they can go. Thousands and thousands and thousands of employees. We want you to let them all go out of Egypt. And Moses is realizing, Lord, how am I going to give this message to to the Pharaoh? Who am I going to say gives this message? And God's answer is, tell them that the I am that I am sent you. And so that is the English translation for a name for God. The Jewish people knew that. And when Jesus said, I am, it's more than just, well, I'm Stan. You know, or I am whoever you are. It is a name for God. And he's saying that he's God. So let's go on here. We have, we have the encounter with the Jewish leaders. Uh, let's look at the explanation. How does Jesus explain this? They come with this question. Tell us, are you the Messiah? And so Jesus answered, and he said, I did tell you, but you didn't believe me. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He continues, again, the Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Oh, we're not stoning you for any good work. 
They replied, but for blaspheming, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You see how intently they believe these claims to be God. So at the beginning of this explanation, we have Jesus sharing with him the words that he had. And I've already gone over a lot of that, where he said, I am God. God is my Father. And so we need to ask the question, did they really want to know the answer? Do you think they really wanted to know the answer? Jesus told them again and again. And he told them with his words, and he told them with his works, or his actions, or his miracles. He says that in the, in the second part here. Uh, oh, wait. Got to get back there. Uh, I and the Father are one. Um, and he says, for which of the good works that I've done? Now, what was Jesus known for? Jesus was known for his teaching and for the miracles. Jesus healed a number of people. Just in the book of John, up to this point, we have Jesus turning water into wine. We have Jesus healing the official's son in John chapter 4. In John chapter 5, Jesus is healing the, the, the uh, paralyzed person at the pool of Bethsaida. We have Jesus in John chapter 6 feeding 5,000 plus people on the hillside. Later on in John chapter 6, Jesus walks on the water. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. Over and over again, Jesus is doing these miraculous signs. And Jesus says to them, For which one of these good works are you stoning me? Are you stoning me for healing the paralyzed man, for feeding 5,000 people? Are you stoning me for healing the blind man? On the Sabbath, which was a problem for them. They say, no, we're not stoning you for any of these. We're stoning you because you claim to be God. You claim to be God. And so I need to ask the question as we look at this explanation. Why didn't they want to know the answer to their question? It's plain that they must have known the answer. It's almost like it's a, it's a phony, contrived experience out here in Solomon's colonnade just to make a public affair out of this and say, are you really the Messiah? Say it before the crowd. Jesus had already said it before as many crowds as you can imagine. Well, the Bible gives us a few insights into why they might not want to know it. Later on in the book of John, as Jesus prays to his Father, he says, when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. I think one of the reasons that they didn't want to receive the answer is because they were in the wrong about sin. They realized that the correct answer to the question that they were asking would reveal the sin that was in their lives. And they're saying, let's just keep asking the question. 
Let's not ever stop and listen for the answer because the answer will convict me of the sin that's in my life. Later on in Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that the message of Christ, the, the, uh, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who want to keep their eyes blinded, the message of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the very answer that they're looking for is the power that can change their lives. And just before this account in John chapter 10, we have Jesus healing the blind man in John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, Jesus gives quite lengthy explanation about spiritual blindness. You see, there's a very real spiritual force in the world. And the spiritual forces don't want us to see God. There's this spiritual blindness that we're willing to let keep us from seeing who Jesus is. So what I want you to see is here in this explanation that there are some things that are very concrete, some things that we can, can learn from this. And the first thing is, Jesus is God. This is who He says He is. This is who the people around Him think He is. The people that are open to Him and receive Him know that He's God. The people that are against Him and want to kill Him know that He's God and don't want to receive the answer. In verse 30 that we just read, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is one of the persons of God. It's a statement of His deity. This is not that they're, that they're feeling this, this, this oneness where, you know, I have, the, I have a good friend. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just... We're one as we go through life together. No, it's saying that in essence, they are one. They are this Trinity. We know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit form God in three persons. And so Jesus is making a very clear statement about His deity, that He is God. And as I've said, the Jews knew that this was His claim to be God. They would not have been so upset if they didn't if they didn't uh, uh, know this claim to be true. That's why they wanted to kill him. They were serious enough about this whole event, this whole statement of Jesus, his whole life, that they wanted to kill him. It's not just go away, leave us alone for a while. We're going to eliminate you so that you cannot give this message. You believe it so fully that we know that, you, uh, that you're making this claim and we want to kill you. He says um, in, in, um, in 1 John, John's an older man, he writes in, in 1 John chapter 2, he says that he is one with the Father. Um, I need to get back on track here with where I am on my notes. Um, are you in, in Luke, um, at the trial where Jesus is being questioned as far as who he is. He's questioned, and, and the question is, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, yes. No equivocation about it. Look it up in Luke chapter 22 there. Yes, I am 
the Son of God. And so they're trying to stone him. And like I said, we're up to the the third or fourth time here in the book of John that we're trying to stone him. And so what's going on? We have um, the encounter. We have the explanation. We want to look a little bit about the examination of their motives because Jesus does not let them off the hook. He doesn't say, okay, you guys can just keep asking me all kinds of questions and, and we'll just, you know, I'll just pretend that I don't know what's going on. And so Jesus examines the motives and uh, um, let's look at, uh, at this passage of Scripture and we'll come back and talk about it. Starting at uh, John 10, uh, 34. Jesus answered them, it is, not written, is it not written in your law? And then he goes on through a portion of what is written in their law. And he says, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days, where he stayed. And many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man is true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, as Jesus examines the motives and sees where they're coming from, we can learn a few things from it. First of all, the word believe is a very important word, important concept in the book of John. 21 chapters in the book of John, 20 of them have the word believe in it. Many of the chapters, multiple places. The, the word believe is so important. It's important to understand that our belief guides our life. John is wanting us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So Jesus' answer is no surprise. Their question had motives to it. Their questions were to trap him. They were trying to manipulate Jesus so that they could kill him. And what did the, what did the Jewish leaders believe? In Matthew chapter 12, Verse 24, it says that the Jewish leaders thought that Jesus was getting the power from Beelzebub. That's Satan. They said this power could not be from God. You cannot be God. It must be coming from Beelzebub. Coming from Satan. And so why are the Jewish leaders so upset? What is so offensive about Jesus' message? What is it that has them say, you're crazy, it can't be true, it's not from God, it must be from Satan? What is it that is so offensive about the message of Jesus that people then and now don't want to believe it? Well, one thing that I'd like to point out is that by making Jesus Lord, that means that I am not in charge. One of the things we talk about is that we are saved and Jesus becomes the Lord, the one in charge, the boss of our life. If Jesus is in charge, who can't be in charge? Me. If Jesus is in charge, 
I can't be in charge, and that's an offensive message. Do you see what happens? Things like pride, selfishness, get in the way. It's going to be about me, what I can do. I'm not going to yield my life to this Jesus. Because if I say yes to his question, that means that my life needs to start changing. As long as I can keep asking the question, as long as I can keep investigating, let's look into this further, let's learn more about this. I don't need to deal with the question. And I don't need to deal with the consequences. One of the things that's, as I look back at it, it's really kind of silly. I came to know Christ at the age of 14. And I grew up in a home that, you know, I went to church all along. And I've told you, told you this before. I've heard the gospel, I heard the gospel, and I'm certain that for several years before I responded to the gospel, I knew enough in my head that I could have told someone how to become a Christian. The pastor used to give his invitations on a regular basis at, at church, and he would usually ask you to put your hand up if you wanted to, to do anything, if you wanted to follow Christ. And I was so afraid as a 14-year-old boy that my hand was going to go up that I'd sit on them. Make sure those hands don't go up. I'm not going to respond to this question because I knew enough about it that my life would need to start changing. And I think that's what's going on here. To answer the question, who is Jesus, means that I am going to have to change. To answer the question means to realize that Jesus is exclusive. And sometimes Christians or people in the world say, well, aren't Christians kind of exclusive? They say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Well, first of all, I'm not saying that Jesus is. You need to talk with him about it, not me. Jesus is the one that said he's the only way to heaven. And the second part about it is, yes, it's exclusive, but it's open for everyone. There's no discrimination in saying, well, this group of people can't go. And so Jesus is exclusive. You see, it can't be partly Jesus. Well, we're going to take a little bit of Jesus here. We're going to believe that Jesus is a little bit God. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is either all God or not God at all. There's no such thing as a joint God. Well, let's decide that Jesus is going to be co-God with somebody. You know, Jesus and you can pick whoever else you want to have there. You see, this is what got the, the Christians in the, in the early centuries, first, second centuries, this is what got them in trouble with the Roman government. You see, the Roman government was fine for you to worship anyone you want. As long as you put the Roman emperor first. You have to put the statue of the Roman emperor in the prominent meeting place. You have to acknowledge the Roman emperor as the person that is in charge and then any other gods you want to have, that's just fine. Does it sound familiar? But God is saying, Him and Him alone. And so, we need to ask the question, 
He's either God or He's not. Who is He? There's not a lot of middle, there's no middle ground here. Jesus says in, uh, in verse 27 here in, in John chapter 10, He says, My sheep know My voice. You can know that you know Jesus by knowing your sheep, or by knowing His voice. You are one of His sheep. So I need to ask, what motives do you, what motives do I come to Christ with? Is this whole Jesus thing, this whole Christian thing, you know, we can just keep finding more. In America, sometimes it's this thing of, I want to know more about Jesus. Why do I go to church? Why do I go to Sunday school? Why do I read my Bible? So I can know more about God. And oh, I want to know more. Everybody needs to know more about Jesus. But as long as we keep it this intellectual thing and it doesn't go 12 inches down here to the heart, we can keep that distance. I can compartmentalize my brain from the rest of my life. And I can say, I want to just keep asking the question. I want to gather the information. I want to seek that one more thing. I have this question that's not answered. And until I get that answer, I'm going to just keep that distance. And I wonder, what kind of answer would you need? Would it be enough if Jesus walked across the harbor? Started over here on, on, on the Hong Kong island, walked over here and joined us for the service? Would that be enough? I mean, Jesus has walked on water, certainly not out of His realm of capabilities. Would that be enough? Would that be enough to say, yes, your Lord? It wasn't for the people then. What happens if you have questions that aren't answered? What happens if you're a skeptic and there's things that just aren't there? Well, to be honest with you, that's how I came to Christ. You see, what, what happened in my life is that on, on a Saturday evening in October, a friend of mine said, do you have any good reason why you don't want to become a Christian? And a lot of things went through my head at that time. And I said, I will give it a try. I will see God if you are real. And if you're not real, I'm gone. And so my life has pretty much been this quest to say, God, are you real? And I can answer confidently now, yes, He's real. He's God. I know it. We had a man here about two years ago named uh, Alec McClellan, and uh, he had quite a, went too far there, he had quite a message. He had this book that he gave, and by the way, I have a few copies up here. Uh, feel free to come up and get one. If they're all gone, see me and I'll get, you, I'll get you another one. But what Alec McClellan did is he took the idea of a jigsaw puzzle. You can see that on the, on the, on the screen there, it's kind of a jigsaw puzzle. Everybody done jigsaw puzzles? Do you like doing jigsaw puzzles if you don't have the box with the picture? 
No. <laughs> They're really hard if you don't have the box. You dump those pieces out, and you have no idea what's there. And so what you start doing is, first of all, sometimes they trick you. They make these round puzzles. <laughs> they make funny-shaped puzzles. But if it's a traditional square or rectangle puzzle, you try to find the four corners, and then you start finding all the ones with the straight edges, and you start putting the picture together. You done that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, what Alec McClellan told us as he was here in this very room talking about it is, as you start to put the puzzle together, you don't need to have all the pieces in place to know what the picture is. Sometimes if you get the center or get the edge, get something, you can tell, oh, this is a picture from, from the woods, this is a picture from the sea, this is a picture of the mountains, this is a picture of whatever. Um, and you can start to tell what that picture is, maybe when less than half the pieces are actually in place. In fact, as you know what the picture is, you start to realize what the pieces are that you don't have in place. And it becomes easier to put those pieces in once you have an idea as to what the picture is. Do you see the parallel with what's going on here? If I was to have the approach and say, I'm going to think of every possible question, and until I get a solid scientific answer, and that's a, until I get a solid answer on all these things, I'm not ready to believe. But John's giving us pieces of the puzzle and saying this is who Jesus is. As you start seeing this piece and this piece and this piece, you can put the puzzle together. And to be honest with you, it's been easier for me to put the remaining pieces in place once I knew the picture. And so I just want to, to end this passage or end this, this message by asking myself the question and by asking you the question. What's your answer? Who is Jesus? Is He the Christ? Is He the Messiah? Is He the Lord of your life? Now there's a couple steps that go on here. We need to receive Him as Savior where we recognize that He is the one that paid the price for us and makes it possible for us to know God. That's an important set of pieces into this puzzle. And I would invite you, if, if you're at that place where you say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I've trusted Jesus for my salvation. I would encourage you during the, the, the last song or at the end of the service, simply come up here. We'll find someone to talk with you a little bit about it. See if we can help you with those questions. But the next part that I'd like to say is, for those who already believe that Jesus is the Messiah... The Christian and Missionary Alliance that we're a part of talks about Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. Four parts there. The second part is the Sanctifier, where Jesus, where, where we are set apart for God. We're letting Him take over all of our life. He is Lord of everything. Do you acknowledge 
that Jesus is the Messiah? Or are you trying to find some other way to answer that question? You know, if I really say yes to that, then I'm going to need to change the way I live, the priorities that I have, the thoughts that I have, the things that I watch, the things that I do. It's going to start affecting my life, and I'm just not going to answer that question. Not going to deal with it, because I'm not ready to make Him Lord of my life. I'd encourage you to ask yourself both of these questions. Who is Jesus? Do I know Him as Savior? Do I know Him as Sanctifier? Is He really the Lord of my life? Don't leave here today without that. Look at this passage again. Look at the message that John's trying to give us in the Gospel of John. And he says very clearly the purpose of his book. I write these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, And that by believing you may have life in His name. That's exciting. We want to have the life, but that comes by believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And so I simply need to leave you and ask you, what is your response? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray. Father, what a challenge. You impressed upon the Apostle John to to write these words. And he very clearly shares in the Gospel, in the book that he writes, that he truly believes that you are the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who has come for us, the One who is God. And that makes a difference in our lives today. May we live for You. May we serve You. May we honor You. May we glorify You. In Jesus' name, Amen.